to the book of Malachi. If you have trouble finding it, you can go to where your New Testament starts and go backwards one page. It's hiding right there at the end of your Old Testament, last book that closes it out. And even though this book was written some 2,500 years ago, we are going to see as we begin our study of it that it is evergreen. It is written to address something that is a perpetual struggle for God's people. At its core, Malachi is God's word to his people who have stopped trusting that he loves them. Malachi, at its core, is God's word to his people who have stopped trusting that he actually loves them. And as we walk through this book, we're going to see how that shift, that change in understanding of who God is and how he relates to them affects every area of their lives. The fact is, church, that what you believe about God is the most shaping thing in your life. This stands for the atheist as much as it does for the most devout and pious person among us. What we believe about God, who he is, what he does, shapes how we understand and make sense of everything else we experience and encounter in life. The most dangerous lie that you can believe as a human being is that you can thrive outside of God's love. But as a Christian, the most dangerous lie that you can believe is that you do not have that love. As we play out the string in Malachi, we're going to see why that is. But for now, we're going to start at the beginning of the book, right at the heart of the matter, that God does, in fact, love his people. Let's read Malachi 1. We're going to go through verse 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We, um, we go out into the world, and we live in it. Uh, we are preached to all the time, uh, different messages, different um, things that parade themselves as truth, and it is almost impossible for us not to be influenced by them. Uh, Lord, and so um, our view of you gets shaped by all sorts of things that are not an accurate reflection of you, and, and so we need that to be corrected. Uh, and so we come to you and to your word this morning asking that you would do that by the power of your spirit, that you would... Help us to see you clearly. Help us to understand how it is that you relate to us in such a way, Lord, that it would um, overcome the doubts and the distortions that so easily creep in. We thank you that we can trust you to do that. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we get into this, a few things right at the beginning of the book. Um, right, this says that what we're reading is an oracle. An oracle. That's a really strange word uh, in Hebrew, actually, when it's translated. An oracle is kind of a, a best shot at it. But if you look at the, the Hebrew, the, the connotations of this word are actually weight and, and heaviness. It, this word gets used when it's referring to kind of the weight of guilt and shame a lot of times. And so the idea here used in this context with a word that's coming is that sense that this is, this is not going to be a light chat of a conversation that we have in this book. There, there's some heaviness along the way. It is, a, it is a word from the Lord that puts a weight on those that it comes to in a way. And that's what's captured there. So that kind of sets our expectations a little bit for what we are going to encounter as we get into this. This word from the Lord comes through Malachi. Malachi literally means my messenger. So we're not sure if this is actually a guy's proper name or just a title for an anonymous prophet that God speaks through. It could be either one, and there's good arguments for either. Um, but either way, unlike some prophetic books, who Malachi is plays very little role in his prophecy. If you read some of the other prophets, a lot of the prophets, their message is very much bound up in who they are. Think of somebody like Jonah and all that happened to him. What happens to him is much what his prophetic career is about as much as what he says. Same thing with a prophet like Hosea, if you're familiar with his story at all. He lives out the word that the Lord has for him to give to his people. Malachi is not like that. He essentially works, functions very much straight up as a mouthpiece for God. In fact, this book has the highest proportion of direct quotes, like thus saith the Lord, of any book in all of Scripture. So his role is very much simply to deliver God's message to his people. So what is this message? What is the message that God has for his people Israel? Well, you're going to see a pattern over and over again as we go through this book. It's written as a series of almost disputations. God says something. He makes a statement. And then there's a counterpoint from Israel's perspective. And then God defends the initial statement that he makes and argues for it to help Israel see the error of their way and how they are seeing things. It, has almost, it sounds almost, almost legal in a sense, in the way it comes across, like argumentative in a formal kind of way. But that style should not cause us to miss that the point of this letter is anything but cold and sterile and legal. Right? This, is, this letter is an act of love. This, this book, this word is an act of love from a God who loves his people and is seeking to reawaken them to that love. Right, to reawaken them and to cut through the mist and all the things that have distorted it and blinded them to it in life. This becomes very clear because the first thing that he says is this very definitive statement, I have loved you. I have loved you. And in grammatically, this has the context of love that started in the past and is ongoing. This isn't, I, I have loved you once before. This is, I loved you and I still do love you. It's an ongoing dynamic, something that started in the past and continues. I've loved you and I still do. And God's love for his people, Israel, is attested to throughout the Old Testament. It is a constant theme all over. Passages like Deuteronomy 7.8, Jeremiah 31.3, and dozens of others speak of God's love for his people. So we might be surprised when 
we get immediate pushback from Israel's perspective. God says, I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Prove it. Now it's important for us to know when we read these arguments, these aren't actually a dialogue between God. God's not talking to Israel and they're saying this. God is showing, God's exposing the heart of Israel right now, right? He is showing what lies within their heart that's maybe not said out loud even. Maybe some people would say these things, but he's drawing out what's below the surface that maybe they aren't even fully aware of. He's surfacing and making explicit what has slipped in and crept in subtly over the years, right? If you were to ask somebody in Israel during this time if God loved them, they probably would have said yes. They went to Sunday school, right? They, they know the right answer. They know the answers to the test, right? They grew up being taught that God loves them. They know the right answer to give. But what we'll see, and, and when you look at the rest of the book, there's no open revolt, against Yahweh. This isn't like an outright rebellion against God. It's much more subtle than that. The problem wasn't that Israel didn't know the answers to the test. The problem is that they didn't believe them to be true anymore. Right? They knew the right answer, but they just didn't buy it. So God is saying the quiet parts out loud for them so that they are forced to confront it and deal with what is actually going on in their hearts. Church, the same thing that happened with Israel easily happens with us. It can happen in small ways, it can happen in large ways, but there's often a gap that forms between what we know intellectually to be true and what we believe or trust functionally in the way that we live. We often, as Christians, can live like functional atheists or that we have a God quite different from the one who shows himself to us in Scripture. And we make decisions and we act in ways that don't align with what we know to be true about him. I think a great example of this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? Superstar Christian in our estimation, right? In Romans 7, he's talking about his life as a Christian. And what does he say? He says, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. Even Paul, the great missionary, struggles with this. He knows the truth, and yet, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there is still, he finds this disconnect in him, where he does not live in accord with what he knows to be true at times. So whatever Joe Israelite on the street would say about the love of God, what they believed and how they lived, was they lived in light of a God that didn't love them anymore. And so that's the pushback, right? Not that they're saying out loud, but what's in their heart is, what have you done for me lately, God? How have you loved us here and now? That is what is going on in Israel with God's people. Why? Why? Where is that coming from? Well, this doubt and unbelief didn't just pop up in a vacuum, right? There are reasons for it. It's coming from their lived experience, And particularly, it's coming from the way that their life has not aligned with their desires and expectations. Reality has not lived up to what they hoped it would be and what they expected it to be for God's people. 
Basically, their perspective is, if God actually loved us, then things wouldn't be like this. And because that's true, God must not love us. Because if he did, it wouldn't be like this. You see, these words came to Israel at a time when life was genuinely hard. Very, very brief history, right? God had called them out, made them into a people, and had made a covenant with them that he would be their God, they would be his people, and he would give them prosperity in the land of Canaan as long as they were faithful. But they weren't faithful, so that prosperity was taken away. The kingdom was first divided into a northern and a southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And then those kingdoms were later subjugated and eventually exiled. The northern kingdom by Assyria and the southern kingdom by Babylon. The God in his grace and mercy, even though they had broken his covenant, kindly promised to ultimately bring a remnant of them back to the land that he had given them. And he did that. He was faithful to that promise, even though they did not deserve this. He also promised they would get to rebuild the temple. And they did. Again, this God did not owe them this. Right? They had failed to keep what he had called them to. It was grace and mercy. And yet, that return was probably tasted more bitter than sweet. They're back, but they are still a subjugated people, now under the rule of Persia, even though they're back in their own land. The temple's rebuilt, but it pales in comparison to what the temple once was, to, to the point that the, the older folks who come back who are old enough to remember the original temple that Babylon destroyed, when it's finished and they see it, they break down weeping because it is such a, it pales in comparison so much to what once was. When Malachi's written, they've been back for a little while in the land and it's not a very glorious existence. Uh, we see a lot of what life is like there in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were taxed very, very heavily uh, by the Persian Empire to fund their building projects and their wars and their expansion of their empire. There was also corruption in the lower governors that, were, that also took their cut. There was famine, rampant inflation. The economy was such a mess that there was rampant debt slavery. People who sold themselves into slavery basically so they could eat because they could not function as independent uh, members of the society anymore. And on top of this, they were constantly harassed by the neighboring people groups. The point when they are actually working on the city when they come back, they have to build with one hand with a sword in the other. A trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because of the constant harassment of the peoples around them. It's not a great, you can, you can understand why there would be some discouragement, can't you? It does not sound like the kind of life we long for. And so this distrust, this doubt, didn't come from nowhere. They lived a hard life. And eventually they came to the point where they thought if God loved them, life would not be like this. How does this reflect the love of God? But they're making a critical mistake that we ourselves often make as well. Right? They are defining the love of God by their circumstances. Instead of understanding their circumstances in light of the love of God. What is the fixed thing? What is the thing that you are sure of? I know this is to be true and I have to understand everything else in light of this. For them, it's their experience. 
right? It's their circumstances right now. That is the most real thing to them. And so everything else has to bend around that reality. So they come to this conclusion that God doesn't love them. What they should be doing is resting in the fact that God does love us. So whatever all this means, it doesn't mean that's not true. That is true. And I have to understand the hardship and the difficulty of this life somehow in light of God's love. But that, when that gets flipped around, we start now redefining God in relation to our circumstances. As human beings, it's just so easy for us to miss how much we are driven by our desire for immediate comfort, whether that be pleasure or relief from pain. There's this relatively famous study, you can find video clips of it online very easily, where um, it's a test and they put a kid in a room alone with a marshmallow. And if they don't eat it for a certain amount of time, they get a second marshmallow and they get to eat two. And it's not very long. I forget how long it is. It's like a minute. It's very, very short. And kid after kid goes into this room with the marshmallow. That's the only thing there. And they cannot not eat the marshmallow, right? They just sit there and they like, they start drooling and they play with it and they're doing everything they can to not eat the marshmallow, knowing if they just hold on for this little bit of time, they'll get double marshmallows and they can't do it. It overwhelms them, it overpowers them. They need the marshmallow. You're supposed to laugh at that. That's good. It's ridiculous, right? But laugh at it, but don't, don't see it as far off, right? Because we act like this. We act like this. We do the same thing. We, as human beings, are incredibly nearsighted. We always want to feel better now. We want to feel better now. Think about temptation. Temptation to sin always works like this. You are never tempted to sin with a lie that sounds something like, this will be hard right now, but down the road it'll really pay off. Sin never tempts you that way. Sin always tempts you with a shortcut, some kind of immediate relief, immediate pleasure. Get out of this thing just like this. Just press the easy button. Here's the silver bullet. It always promises that easy relief because we want that. We hate being uncomfortable. We want relief. And that longing for relief is so innate that it starts to shape the way that we define love. If God loved me, he would give me this relief. That's what love must look like because this is what I want. If God truly loved me, I wouldn't struggle with this addiction. My marriage wouldn't be hard. Money wouldn't be tight. My kids would be easier. I would be healthy. People would respect me at work. This temptation would not still be hard. I wouldn't be lonely or depressed or anxious. We make these sorts of circumstances our definition of love. Right? If somebody would love me, they would relieve this. That's what love must look like. And when it doesn't play out the way we want, we conclude that God, his sovereign over all things, must not love us because he could have done something about this. The truth is that our appetites and expectations blind us from seeing the ways that God has, in fact, actually demonstrated his love. We get so myopic about love must look like relief from this thing, getting this now, 
that it puts blinders on us. That's the only way we can see it, even when God has demonstrated his love in much greater, richer ways. We don't have the eyes to see. So let's talk about the love of God. The love of God is something much richer, much greater than just something that appeases our appetites. He is not a a worn-out parent who just throws candy at the kid to make them be quiet for a minute. That is not who our God is. And yet that's often this picture that we get. We just want a God who will do that for us. Thankfully, he is a better God than that. He's a better parent than that. And he chooses in this argumentation he's putting out here for Israel, he chooses one particular relationship to show the nature of his love and to demonstrate just how foolish Israel is for thinking that he does not love them. The foolishness that we Christians share as well. He uses the relationship between Esau and Jacob. Let me read again, starting in verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This passage may seem a little strange just in a vacuum, but there is a lot of extra material that lies behind these words that Israel knows very well, very innately. This is right at the core of who they are, this story of Jacob and Esau, this account. So let's talk about Jacob and Esau and what, why God brings up this particular thing to show us about his love. When we define God's love by circumstantial relief, we end up with a love that's marked by entitlement. Right? I deserve this. God owes, God must love me this way if he's going to love me. I followed you, so I deserve X thing, whatever this thing is that I want. It's a kind of love that we can indebt God to and obligate him to us in some way. Could have put him over a barrel. And Jacob and Esau shows a very, very different kind of love. First thing we see here is that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. This is strong language, right? One thing we need to understand is how the Bible sometimes uses love and hate here. Um, Jesus used this to talk about um, how we needed to, in loving him, we need to be willing to hate even our families. It doesn't mean we are supposed to treat our families ill, right? Because he says that in other places. We're to honor our father and mother. And then Jesus says, if you love me and you're not willing to hate your father and mother and come after me. So clearly... He doesn't mean being malicious towards them, right? What love and hate in this context is, is it's using extremes to paint a contrast, to show in the context of what Jesus is saying, how much greater your love for me must be over and above your mother and father, right? If you, you cannot compromise your love for me, for them. If you get painted into a corner where you have to choose, I have to be your supreme love. And that's the way it's being used here right? There is a different kind of affection that God shows to Jacob, a different kind of love that he shows to Jacob. And in comparison to how he relates to Esau, it is that stark that it looks like love and hate, these polar opposites. The point is that God set his affection on Jacob in a way that he did not on Esau. 
So that begs the question of why. Why Jacob and why not Esau? Because that's the contrast. There's these two brothers. Why does this one get the affection of the Lord and the other one doesn't? Well, we're going to start with, start with why it doesn't happen. Right? It's not because of who Jacob was. With regard to that, actually, Jacob was the less qualified brother. Esau was the older brother. And culturally, as the firstborn, he should have been the one to be chosen. He's the one who should take the promises of his fathers and carry them forward. That's his, called the, his birthright. He's the one through whom the family is primarily supposed to continue on through. And yet God chose to set his affection on Jacob and make it his. It's not only did he not choose the more qualified one, he chose the less qualified one, the one that makes no sense, the one that would never be picked. So if it doesn't have to do with who Jacob was, maybe it has to do with the way they acted, right? Maybe Jacob's the more righteous one, and so God passed over the more wicked brother to give it to the more deserving one. Well, we can't land there if we have any kind of open-eyed view of Jacob. Jacob was not a good person. He was not a good person. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He selfishly exploited those around him. He's not the kind of guy you would want as your neighbor, as your friend. You wouldn't want this guy anywhere near you. He is portrayed in Scripture, honestly, as a pretty worthless human being. Right? He, he's not a good person. Now, Esau wasn't good either. Esau had his own flaws. The point is that neither of them deserves the love of a holy God. Neither one of them could say, hey, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. You must love me. I deserve to be loved by you. These guys did not deserve to be loved by a holy and just God. So one of the things that God, in pointing us back to this story, is it reminds us that God's love and affection is not something that can be manipulated or merited. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved the love of God. Esau got what he deserved. He got justice, ultimately. And Jacob got better than he deserved, but, not, but it was grace. Nobody was treated unfairly. One got what they deserved and one got better. And so what Malachi is driving home to Israel is the fact, that, the fact that we are even having a conversation that God is speaking to you as his people because Jacob is their forefather, right? The fact that we're even having a conversation in this relationship is a stunning act of love. You don't deserve to be God's people, right? The only reason you are is sheer grace and mercy. This, just the fact that they're communing in this way is proof of God's unmerited love for them. God's love for his people is like his love for Jacob. It is not elicited by any quality in us or anything that we have done or accomplished. If it would depend on those things, none of us would have it. And this is so hard for us to grasp, guys, because our love does not work like this. Our love, human love, is always in response to something lovable, right? You have never loved anyone that didn't have something that drew you to them. You can't love like that. We always are drawn to something in the person, something we admire, something we respect, something we find attractive. That's the only way we can love. And because of that, we tend to think God's love is like our love. It's the same kind. Maybe it's just more. 
God's love is not like our love. It is entirely of an entirely different sort. And I think Martin Luther captured this brilliantly. I think this is, he's a, he was a great wordsmith, and I think this is one of his best things he ever said. He said this in 1518 in his Heidelberg Disputation. And he said that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that what is pleasing to it. This is the opposite of how our love works. Our love goes out and finds something that we like, and then we love it. What Luther is saying is like God's love does the opposite. God's love goes out and creates what it loves in the one that it loves, right? It's not drawn to something that's already there. It creates the goodness. It creates the lovable thing there. Do you guys see the difference? This is, this is radically different than the way that we love. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. This means that God does not love us because we are Christians. It means that we have become Christians because he chose to love us when we were not. He does not love us because we are Christians. We are Christians because he loved us when we were not, while we were yet sinners. So God uses Jacob and Esau to remind them of the nature of this love, that it is completely unmerited and all of grace. But that's not all he does with pointing them back to Jacob and Esau. He also uses this to show them proof that this love is for them. The passage goes on to talk about Edom. Edom is the kingdom that came through Esau's line. Israel came through Jacob, and Edom came through Israel. And they were pretty much enemies their entire existence. They did not get along well. And God says of Edom, um, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. This is common language for judgment, of being conquered by somebody else and taken off to exile. It's used in other places in the Old Testament. It's used to talk about the, the judgment on Israel for their faithlessness. The same kind of language gets used to talk about their own exile and what they are is going to befall them because they broke God's covenant. So just as Jacob and Esau back in the day were not good, the people who descended from them weren't either. And both had this judgment pronounced on them. But this is where everything changes, right? They're both not good. They're both not faithful. God declares judgment on both. But this is where they diverge. Because Israel comes out the other side of the judgment. Right? He brings a remnant back to the land. He restores them. The temple's rebuilt. They are brought back there. They are brought through judgment and back to life. Edom on the other hand, disappears from history shortly after this letter is written. They're just gone. We have all kinds of archaeological evidence for them, and then there's none. They literally dissolve as a people. And they intended to come through it on their own. Listen to what they say. He says, if Edom says, we are shattered, right? We've fallen. Judgment, God's judgment has fallen. We will rebuild the ruins. Then the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. This should be a sobering thought for any one of you who's here whose faith and trust is not in Christ. 
you will not hold up to the scrutiny of a holy God on your own. Right? Edom essentially tried to get... And it didn't work. Right? They're gone. The only one who can bring you through the wrath of God for sin is God himself. Through the work of Jesus Christ. This is why I said at the beginning that the most dangerous lie you can believe as a human being is to think that you can thrive outside of the love of God. Outside of the love and affection of God that is completely unmerited, due to nothing good in you. Apart from that, the only fate that lies for us is to fall as a sinner under the wrath of a perfect and holy God. God's love is the only hope for us. And so despite their best efforts to stave it off, to rebuild, to survive and to continue, Edom fell under God's righteous judgment. But as we see here, Israel was restored, not because they were better than Edom, but because God loved them. So God tells Israel, hey, you want to know what have I done for you lately? Like, yeah, sure, maybe you loved us back in the day, but look at how bad our life is now. Surely you don't love us now. He says, look across the border. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Watch what happens when someone falls under my judgment apart from my love and affection. There's nothing left. You are so caught up, Israel, in all that you do not have in life that you are missing the fact that you only have life at all because of my grace and mercy and because I have loved you. You are alive to complain because I have loved you and been gracious and merciful to you. The fact that we're having this conversation and that you get to speak to me and I'm interacting with you like this is proof that I love you still to this day. You have passed through judgment and been restored because you are mine and I love you. And if I didn't, what you are watching happen to Edom would be you. The only thing that sets you apart is the fact that I have loved you. So church, we cannot, we should not look at the ease or prosperity we have in this life to measure the love of God, right? If we want to see the love of God, the place we need to look is the contract, not in Israel, looking over the border at Edom. We don't see this by looking across at another nation. Not in Israel, looking over the border at Edom. We don't see this by looking across at another nation. We see this by looking at Jesus. This is where this becomes clear for us. In Jesus, we see the extent of God's love for us and where we would be apart from it if we did not have it. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there not because he deserved it. He went there to bear the wrath of God for your sin. Basically, what happened to Edom, that's what Jesus is bearing on the cross. Not for himself, for you. For you. We are all, to a man, sinners who fall short of God's glory. Every single one of us. Every single one of us deserves what Jesus bore on Calvary. There's not a person in this room who's exempt from that. Every single one of us, that is what we deserve from God. He's perfect and holy, and we are not. So just as Israel was called to look at Edom 
and to see where they would be without the love of God. We are called to look to Calvary. Apart from the love of God on us, we would be the one who has to drink the dregs of God's wrath. We are sinners. And that sin has to be paid for, either by us or by Jesus Christ in our place. So just as God says, tells Israel, you want to know you're loved, look across the border and look what happens when you're not. Christian, you want to know you're loved by God? Don't look at how difficult your circumstances are. Look at Calvary. Where Jesus hung there is where you deserve to be. But instead you have life because God has loved you. We do not define the love of God by our circumstances. Instead, church, we need to refract our circumstances through the lens of God's love for us. Right? When we go through hard things, when we suffer, when life here is not what we want it to be, we're like, how could a God who loves us put me through this? We look at the cross. Well, the God who has me walking through this took on flesh and died the most brutal death imaginable to show his love for me. So surely, whatever is going on right now, it is not hatred. Right? If the same God who has me going through this did that for me, whatever this is, it is not hatred. Because I know he loves me. Our answer is not, this is hard, so God must not love me. Our answer is, this is hard, but I will pass through it, kept by the love of God who bled and died for me and who promised to never leave me or forsake me. Christian, the most dangerous lie that you can believe is that you do not have that love. Right? When we start to doubt that and we start to redefine how we understand the love of God, it trickles out and starts to affect the way we see and understand everything in our lives. And we are going to see that play out with Israel. The most dangerous lie you can believe is that you do not have that love. So church, look to Christ and let that lie die. Let's pray. Let's pray.